Father, thank you that you are the only source of satisfaction. Thank you that as we come before you, as we open our hearts to you and our minds to you, we can wait on you, we can depend upon you, and we can trust you and entrust our lives to you, knowing that you're worthy, uh, you're beyond capable, you're the creator, providential and sovereign, holy and just, and you're a God filled with mercy and grace. And so, Father, we come asking that you speak to us this morning. We would hear from you. In your name I pray. Amen. God's good in a lot of different ways. This morning, the title of the message is The Impossible Task or Doing the Impossible. Have you ever had a task that you thought, this is just impossible, I can't do this? I was reminded, I have a twin brother, a very handsome young man, and... uh, when we were teenagers, uh, Dad gave us the task. We were putting a fence up in the backyard in Belton, South Carolina, and we were uh, instructed to take a post hole digger and dig holes for the post. And so we laid them out. We laid them out with caution and precision, precision. and then we got the post hole diggers. And I don't know if you guys have ever tried to dig with a post hole digger in this red clay that's like cement around here or not. But we began very shortly to feel like this is just an impossible task. And so we worked on it, and we worked on it, and we worked on it. And I'm talking about we worked on hole number one, all right? After a while, Dad came out to check on progress, and he was not pleased. Not pleased at all. He said, why, why is this not job not completely done? And, of course, we explained, Dad, this is red clay. This stuff's hard. It's hard as cement. It's hard as a rock. I don't think these post hole diggers are going to cut it. And uh, so we had the impossible task. It, it was kind of uh, to complete the story. What happened was Dad said, hand me those things. I'll show you boys how it's done. And about 10 minutes later, we went and rented a two-man auger. <laughs> and so it was an impossible task, but one that we're able to complete ultimately. I don't know if you've ever been given the responsibility or the joy, or the privilege of trying to complete an impossible task But I want to tell you that if you are saved and you look, if you've been exposed to Scripture, the truth of Scripture, and you look at the high expectations, things like be holy as I am holy, be perfect as I am perfect, and the commands that are propositional statements, this is to do, to do this, this is what you do not do, do not do that, and you look at that and you may think to yourself, well, that's just unreachable, that's impossible. Today in our text we have... A very clear statement of some things that are to be the normal character of a Christian life. And they seem to be beyond our reach. And today we're also going to look at, all right, how does this happen? How can this become reality? How can you do the impossible? And the answer is, of course, through Christ who lives within you. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This is the last chapter of the book as it's recorded in our scriptures. It's the closing of a letter. And it's a letter from the Apostle Paul to a congregation that is very dear to them. He con- dear to him. He, he continually just reaffirms his affection for them, his praise for them. And he gives them exhortation and correction and clarification on a point of doctrine. And now he comes to the end. And this is a very important part of the letter. We're going to, his concern, by the way, is really kind of summed up in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, where he says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. Again, affirming his love for them, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming 
of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is a recurring theme. This is the point. This is what he's right. This is how why he's invested his life in them. But don't mistake this. What we see described are not exceptions for the super spiritual. Sometimes we think, well, there's top tier Christians, and then there's average normal Christians, and then there's those who probably may not be Christians at all. I want to tell you, this is to be characteristic of every believer's life. It's what we're called to as maturity. And he has it. I'm dividing this up. This is divided up into three really emphasis in our passage today. And the first one is how to behave toward your spiritual leaders. The second is how to behave toward one another. And the third is how to behave toward God. So first we're going to look at just a couple of verses. uh, Verses 12 and 13 of chapter 5 where he says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work in the Lord. Be at peace among yourselves. So the first people that he's talking about, how we're to think about, behave, engage with, are your spiritual leaders. Now, how are they described here? And I want us to kind of focus this up. We're going to walk through this passage and look at the words of the text, and we're going to stay very close to the text this morning. He's talking about those who labor among you. And again, I had the opportunity this week just to do some word studies, and this word labor is those who work, those who work hard. And there is a misconception about pastors and church staff and ministers and sometimes spiritual leaders that Sunday is the day they work and the rest of the time is, is for uh, golf and leisure activities or fishing or whatever their leisure activity may be. I, I do want to tell you that that is not an accurate perception, but it is a common one. Years ago when I was pastoring the deaf church, I was teaching a Bible study on Wednesday night. We were upstairs in the old building over there, had a good crowd and we had several guests and one of the people I had picked up and he needed a ride home so I was driving to take him home and we were talking about the passage that we had just studied and we were having a pretty good conversation I will tell you it's hard to carry on a conversation in sign language with the light on in the car at night while you're driving and they're sitting beside you and so it's one of those one eye swivels back and forth to keep the conversation going when we got to where he was going he said I have a question for you where do you work And I said, I'm the pastor of the deaf church where we just met. He said, no, I mean your real job. Where do you really work? And sometimes that's a conception. I want you to understand, you will find no one more fully engaged than the Apostle Paul was. You will find no one that worked harder than Pastor James of the church at Jerusalem. When you see the list of people who are engaged in church leadership and the way that we are called to work, I want you to know, even in seminary, I came across guys who were like, yeah, I think this will be a fairly evenly faced job. We are called to labor, to toil, T-O-I-L, to work diligently for God's glory, for the good of the congregation and the community to which we are called. And so it's important Much of what pastors do and spiritual leaders do are outside the view of public life. But he says here, that's who I'm talking about. Those who are working hard. And then he uses the phrase, and those who are over you. That's the ESV's translation. There are other translations. I do want you to know, I don't think that's the best translation. Because he's not talking about those who lord it over you. He's not talking about some hierarchical system. Literally, this word means to stand before or to stand in front of. And he's talking about those who lead Those who lead by example, those who point the way, those who bring others alongside of. And of course, don't lose the phrase in the Lord. And let me just give you an exhortation. In the Lord's work, there is a simple simple truth here I want to make sure that we get. Pastors and elders are not hires, they're called. 
What I mean is that you should never have a recognized spiritual leader that views you as simply a stepping stone to a larger church or a personal ministry or the greater ministry or whatever comes next. They should come because they're convinced that God has placed them here. It's really the only way that a pastor can have a long tenure, can have his undivided attention and focus upon a particular people or a community. And equally, on behalf of the congregation, calling a pastor is not a hire. Calling a pastor is searching out God's will. It is prayerfully examining the Word of God, being sensitive to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. You need confidence that God is bringing your spiritual leaders to you and that God has set them apart for spiritual leadership. When he says in the Lord, he doesn't mean just in the Lord's work or generally as a category of religious work. He means those who are resting in the Lord, trusting in the Lord. Those are here by God's will. And then he gives a little bit of their job description. He said, these are the ones who admonish you. Now, admonish is a word many of us will be familiar with. Uh, Nutheteo, nuthetic, nuthetic counseling. This means to literally to put into your mind. What they do, the responsibility here is to teach, but it's also teach with the word of correction. Thayer gives a statement or a phrase in one of his books. He says, one interpretation is to um, exert positive pressure. You ever have a spiritual leader exert positive pressure? And it may be correction. It may be intensive encouragement. It may be an important aspect of this, but they are to admonish. And so what do we do toward these people who work hard, who are called by God, who are entrusted with teaching us and encouraging us and correcting us? Well, then the, the verbs here are, first of all, to respect them. And can I, can I just kind of clarify what this word means in context? It means to notice them. It means don't be oblivious to them. This word doesn't really mean esteem them. That comes later in the passage. This word means recognize what they do. Now I want to share a personal word here from Suzanne and I and also from Scott and Loretta. I'll speak on their behalf. We would very much like to express our appreciation to you for the ways that you have expressed your appreciation to us. I hope you know how much we love you and we're very grateful for the expressions of love and appreciation that you give us continually, but particularly those special occasions like last week. It's very meaningful to us. And I will tell you, speaking on my behalf, it's a little scary how well you know me. The gifts of chocolate and coffee are greatly appreciated. <laughs> but we are grateful. Listen, I want you to know something. We're loved, and we know that we're loved. Uh, and we're grateful to be part of a congregation that displays appreciation. And I hope you know how much we love you as well. Now, the next thing that he says not only is respect them and see them and acknowledge them, but he says to esteem them very highly in love. Y'all know what that means. That just means value them. Be appreciative. Hold them in esteem. And then the last phrase in this section of how to address or how to behave towards your spiritual leaders is to be at peace among yourselves. I want you to know that in the context, this does not follow the subsequent topic. This follows the how do you deal with leaders. And what he's talking about here is be at peace among yourselves. We're on the same subject. It, does, it means to not cause factions 
or fights around leaders. You guys remember in 1 Corinthians where some said, I'm of Paul, and others said, oh, I'm of Apollos, and some said, oh, no, Peter's my man. And some were pretty arrogant, and they said, well, no, we, we, we're only after Jesus. We're the only ones. And there were these factions and these groups. Have you guys ever been in a fighting church? Have you ever been in a fighting church where the, where the staff chose sides? There's a church in our history not too long ago where members of the staff wouldn't sit on the platform at the same time. When one came up, the other one would come down. And when the other one came up, the other one would come down. I want to tell you, that's ungodly before God. I want to also tell you that congregations who support that and encourage that and who are unruly in that manner, it is not to be tolerated. All of us are to be sub subject to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, serving the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. The Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. Amen? And so we may have disagreements about this and we may not look completely eye to eye on this, that, the other, but we are all headed in the same direction, uh, submitted to the same Lord. Amen? Very important. Be at peace among yourselves. Now the focus shifts in these next couple of verses. Lest one think that leaders are to do all of the instructions and disciplines. He get, then goes how to behave toward one another. In verse 14, he says, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. I'm going to take these a phrase at a time. Admonish the idle. Now, what is an idle? Is that a lazy? This is not I-D-O-L. This is I-D-L-E in our translation. I will tell you that, again, there's some others. You need to compare some translations. And many of your study Bibles here will have a footnote that will say, also, someone who is undisciplined or someone who is unruly. And he's saying here uh, that it can certainly mean lazy, but I think a clearer picture is one who should be about Christ's work. One who should not be idle, should be fully engaged. They either do nothing, they're lazy, or they go their own way, uncooperative, thus creating problems. They're undisciplined, uncooperative, and unruly. And the instruction here is not to the leadership specifically. Now it's to one another, and it says admonish one another, which again is to put it into their mind. And I will tell you that our authority for any correction has to be the Word of God. Amen? You understand, we can't say, oh, I like this and I like that, and I'm going to criticize you and I'm going to straighten you out and I'm going to fix you based upon my personal preferences. We have to be able to go to people in love, motivated by love, and say, listen, Here's what God's Word said, and it's for His glory, and it's for your good, and how can I help you get there? Do you understand what I'm saying? It's very important that we admonish the idol. And then he moves on. Admonish the idol, encourage the faint-hearted. Again, our translation, faint-hearted, some of them say discouraged. It literally means to be weak-souled. And it means it's someone who is, who is struggling, possibly thinking they have nothing to offer to the body. They're weak of soul. Possibly they're discouraged because they're struggling with specific sins. You guys ever have one of those sins that you can come up to and you just kind of hit your head up against it and it seems like you're never going to get victory and it becomes discouraging? One step forward, two steps back. It may be discouragement because of any number of reasons. Lord knows we live in a fallen world. Lord knows we are a fallen people and there are so many things that we can be discouraged. The question is not, is there discouragement in the body? Here's the question, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Here, he says we are to encourage. We are to speak courage into. It's to be a word fitly spoken. It's to come alongside of someone. 
It is to speak God's truth about who they are in Christ and who God is in them and all of the things that we need to know. I will tell you, in a moment, we're going to see how important Scripture is. We, are, we, we can so easily take our eyes off of things that are above. You guys remember the messages that we just said. We can so easily get distracted and get under circumstances, and we need to encourage those who are discouraged. And then, of course, the next phrase here, help the weak. Help the weak. I think here Paul is talking about the weak in faith or the weak in grace, either because they haven't been discipled or because they haven't begun to understand grace. Romans 14 is a good reference there. But what do you do for the weak? Well, that's a simple answer, isn't it? We help the weak. We help. And I love the, the word that's most often translated help simply means to hold on to firmly. It means we don't abandon them. It means we're with them and we lend our strength. We're with them and we lend our strength. I've got a, hundreds of examples. Daniel's in here running sound this morning. There have been several times where I was starting to work a task, whether it's bringing a ladder or bringing something up there or moving something over there. I'm like, I can't do it. So my response is, Daniel... And he either helps me or he does it while I go back in the office. Either one works. But what do you do to the weak? You help the weak. You're with them. You lend them your strength. But how do you do that? What are the attitudes that cultivate that? He goes on, by the way, the next phrase in verse 14. Be patient with them all. In verse 15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good and to do good to one another and to everyone. Now, there are three attitudes here, and I want to go through these quickly because the best part's yet to come. What we're talking about now are the high expectations, those things that are, that are to characterize our life. The first one's patience. How's that going, guys? Patience, macrothumia, to bear up under, to stay with it for a long time, to endure. We need to cultivate patience, and patience is cultivated through trials and difficulties, as we surrender our own desires and wants and we depend upon and trust God. I depend on you. I will wait for you. Patience. Strength that continues. And then he says, be patient with them all. That's attitude number one. Second, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. See that no one ever repays evil for evil. I'm going to title this section Grace. You could call it non-retaliation. You could call it quit to forgive. You could call it not having bitterness and not holding grudges. This is Romans chapter 12 where we honor one another. We esteem one another. We leave vengeance up to the Lord. As far as it lives within us, we are at peace with all men. I don't know if you've ever been, if you have friends or family, certainly not us here, but someone in the other churches who hold grudges, and you've got this group and something happened a long time ago, I'm not able to let that go, or something happens here, and all of a sudden you get these sides and these teams and these factions in the life of the body. He says, listen, for you to be the disciple or you ought to be, and for you to be the believer that you ought to be, here's the expectation. I want you to be patient because there's some idle people that are going to be admonished. I want you to be gracious because there are some discouraged people that are going to need your encouragement. I want you to be fully dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ in your patience. 
and, and, and in all the character that he's working in you because there are some weak people that you're going to need to come alongside of. And that's goodness. His last phrase, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Do good. Sounds easy, right? Sounds easy, right? When you start to look at what goodness is and what it means to actively, intentionally work toward the benefit and the good of one another, you're going to realize that doing good to others is going to cost you. It's going to cost you energy and time and effort and attention. It's going to turn your focus outward. Now listen, he's talked about how to behave toward their leaders. He talked about how to behave toward one another and toward everyone. So a smaller group and a larger group, but now he comes and I believe he shifts our attention to how we're to behave toward God. How we're to behave toward God. Verse 16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Verse 17, verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Three things to point out here, very simple. Rejoice, rejoice always. Our lives are to be characterized by joy. And frankly, the bottom tier of this is cheerfulness. Are you cheerful? Some of you aren't. I just want to point that out, okay? And I don't mean that we're to be happy, 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 happy all the time. Those people get on your nerves, don't they? But what I do mean is that in the life of a believer, because of who we are, pay attention to this. Because of who we are, because of what has happened to us in being born, being indwelled by the Spirit of God, being forgiven, being cleansed, being adopted, being redeemed, being promised a future and security, being sealed by the Holy Spirit, being empowered by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Regardless of the circumstances, you can have an inward joy that doesn't stay hidden but makes its way through your, content, your countenance and your words and your deeds. Amen? Pretty high expectation, isn't it? Rejoice always. Rejoice always. But then you need to pray always. You need to pray without ceasing. Why do we pray? Prayer is our communication with God. It's our intimacy with God. It's our opening up ourselves to God. He is our source of strength. He is what we depend upon, his power, his word, his activity in our lives. We have a prayer meeting here, corporate prayer. By the way, you know, Southern Baptist pastor for a long time. My dad was a Southern Baptist pastor a long time for me. What is the least attended meeting of any Southern Baptist congregational assembly? Prayer meeting. And part of that, I think, is the responsibility of the leadership. We haven't emphasized or taught or trained the value of God's people being in the same place at the same time, acknowledging our one God, our one spirit, our one Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, becoming one body and approaching the throne of grace in praise and in repentance and in asking, petition, and in surrender, yieldedness. So we're going to invite you to do that on the 19th. That's next Sunday night at 530 
I love what one of the old pastors used to say. He said, always responds to every impulse to pray. The impulse to pray may come when you're reading the Word of God or when you're battling with an issue. I would make an absolute law of this. Always obey the impulse of the Holy Spirit. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. Pray continually. Pray continually. Pretty high expectation, right? Are you joyful prayers? Well, the next one is to have grateful minds in everything. Give thanks. Give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks. Be grateful, thankful people. Count your blessings, the old song says. Name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God has done. Can I tell you something? We take so much for granted. We take so much for granted, and you need to be awake fresh and you every morning say, God, remind me that I get to thank you for the breath I breathe. I get to thank you for the place that I live and the relationships that I have and the food that I eat, the clothes that I wear. I get to thank you for the common grace of just this beautiful world that you've given us. But I get to thank you for the grace that you have bestowed upon me. Amen. Of all folks, we ought to be the most thankful. And so... How do you do these three things? How do, you, how do you rejoice in the Lord always? How do you give thanks in all circumstances? How do you pray without ceasing? Well, verse 19 says, don't quench the spirit. Don't quench the spirit. Listen, don't quench any prompting, conviction, guidance, or strengthening that God gives you through his indwelling Holy Spirit. Continually be yielded. Allow God's Spirit to live in you. That's what abiding is. Allow God's Spirit to live in you. Allow God's Spirit to be your strength, your guide. All that you need, you already have in God. Do not disregard the Holy Spirit working in your life. Some of you today are going to be convicted of a sin. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Which should lead you to uh, confession and repentance and cleansing, and restoration of fellowship. Some of you may be directed in a direction. You ever been and felt in a service or been just in the Word of God or singing and you felt God prompting you, put something on your heart or your mind to do something, to say something, to call somebody? Don't neglect the promptings of the Holy Spirit in your life. And then he goes to verse 20. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Can I just summarize this in the statement... Do not devalue the reality that God's Word is truth and is living and is active and is powerful. Did you know that you can turn on your radio or your TV or get on YouTube or get on a broadcast or get on a podcast and you'll hear all manner of heresy that's couched as orthodoxy? You'll hear all kind of false teachers out there who are not teaching the Word of God. How do you know? How do you know? By being in the Word of God. By studying the Scriptures, by, by searching them, by testing them. Do not, by the way, prophecy is just the Word of God declared. In this context, it is the Word of God declared to the people, or at least that which claims in this context to be the Word of God declared to the people. Don't despise the foretelling, the foretelling of the Word of God. But do what? Test it. Hey, test it. You test it like the Bereans did in Acts chapter 17, where when, when, when Paul went to them and taught, they searched the Scriptures to see whether these things are true. And, and I will tell you, we can deceive ourselves. Jerry Bridges is a great author, writer. And in one of his books, he says this, Don't believe everything you think. 
you can't be trusted to tell yourself the truth. And we need the Word of God, which is always faithfully true. Well, okay, high expectations. We're just getting to the sermon. You guys ready? High expectations. <laughs> I know. Do you guys smell lunch, by the way? One, one day, I wish you could be in this place while that smell's coming in from the back door. It's a great blessing, and it? it's going to be great. Hold on, though. This is the best thing that's coming. Because we have these high expectations, these absolute commands, these propositional truths. How do you do them? How do you do them? Do you know if you try to do them apart from God working in you, it's going to lead to one of two things. It's going to lead to discouragement and despondency because you're going to fail and you're going to fail and you're going to fail. And it leads to some sort of, at the very least, mediocrity and at the worst, spiritual depression that you can't get out of. Or you're going to feel like you're doing pretty good. And it's going to lead to some kind of horrible spiritual arrogance and pride, which is the worst kind of piety or religious living. There's only one way to do this, and it's in the next passage of Scripture. As impossible as these expectations are, they can and should character, characterize your life. How do you do the impossible? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Sanctify and make you holy. Do all these things. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. So I am encouraging you to look to the only source, your, your only portion, the only provider who can make you holy. I have said this a thousand times in this pulpit. I will say it a thousand times more. When it comes to holiness, I can't. He never said I could. He can. He always said he would. Therefore, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Christ, you can do the impossible. Is anything impossible with God? Ask Mary. Is anything impossible with God? No. Including the ability, giving you the ability to accomplish all of these expectations that he's just conveyed. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless. He doesn't skip a part. The spirit, that which is within a man, his soul, his mind, will, and emotions, his body, the things that he does with his hands, his feet, his eyes, his brain. So how long does this holiness last and how long does it take? He says that you'll be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. John Owens was a Puritan preacher. And if you think my sermons are long, he had 47 points to this one. Let me read this quote. He said the growth of trees and plants take place so slowly that it's not easily seen Daily we notice very little change, but in the course of time we see that a great change has taken place. That's the way it is with grace. Sanctification is a progressive, lifelong work. And he quotes Proverbs 8.18 that says, The path of righteousness is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. It is an amazing work of God's grace, and it is a work to be prayed for. It is a work that is accomplished 
by the Holy Spirit. Here's the summary. How do you do it? Verse 24. Do you have verse 24? Can you see it on the screen? It's the very last sentence upon the screen. Can we read this together? Will you read this with me aloud? He who calls you is faithful. Get loud here. He will surely do it. Did you hear that? Who's faithful? He, Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who lives within you, is faithful. Paul told Timothy, even when we're faithless, he's faithful because he can't deny himself. He who called you is faithful. And what he's called you to, he will surely do it. So what I'm calling you on you is to do it. We sang so well about this morning. Depend on him. What does that mean? I depend on you. It means I entrust myself to you. I surrender myself to you. I depend upon you. God has made provision for our holiness. Through Christ, he has delivered us from sin's reign so that we can now resist sin. But the responsibility for resisting is ours. God does not do that for us. To confuse the potential and the capacity for resisting sin, which is of God, with the responsibility for resisting sin, which is ours, is to court disaster in our pursuit of holiness. You see, God's all in. The question is, are you all in? Does that make sense? Isn't God good? When Paul closes his passage, listen to this. He says, brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. First of all, pray for us. He's speaking back to leaders. Verse 26 and 27, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. He's back to one another, first the leaders and then one another. And he ends, of course, where we should all stay all the time. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Here's the question. With God, nothing is impossible. Are you depending upon him to live in holiness for his glory? That's our call. That's our expectation. Father, I want to thank you for the privilege that we have. To come and listen to your word. We hear Paul's exhortation to the church at Thessalonica. How they're to regard their leaders. How they're to regard one another and relate to one another. And encourage, admonish, and help one another. And then, Father, how we're to show forth your life in us. By being joyful, by being prayerful, by being thankful. How we're to never neglect the prompting of the Holy Spirit or quench the Spirit or ignore or diminish somehow the Holy Spirit in our lives. But fully embrace it by fully embracing your word, testing the prophecies, knowing what your word says and it's true and allowing it to live in our lives. But Father, all of these tasks are only, capable, only capable of being accomplished because you work them out in us as we turn to you in repentance and faith, as we turn to you in trust and obedience. As we live yielded, surrendering you, Father. So here's our prayer. Here's our prayer. Make it very clear. Accomplish that which you have started in us until Christ be fully formed in us. We depend on you to do so. In Jesus' name I pray.